Greetings, everybody. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those awesome tunes that just went through the old listening vessels is, as always, courtesy of the lovely Bobby Mackey. And, of course, I am your host, Tessa Morrow. Moonlight serenades. Big band echoes through empty skies. Where did music fly? You know, it's always an eerie thing when somebody vanishes without a trace, never to be seen or heard from again. And sadly, there are so many cases that date back decades upon decades, and still the family does not have any answers whatsoever. One such case that has always intrigued the hell out of me is that of Glenn Miller. But before we get into the mystery of his disappearance, I would really like to talk just a little bit about the man himself. On March 1st of 1904, Alton Glenn Miller is born in Iowa. The American big band conductor and composer would spend much of his time as a child and into a young man in Colorado's Eastern Plains. I did not know that until I started doing research for this episode. He even attends college there at the University of Colorado, located in Boulder. He was a bright and talented young man. Not many people would argue that he was a master with a trombone, and people simply just adored the heck out of him. Glenn Miller and his orchestra is born 1938 and was an extremely popular big band group. People getting all gussied up in their finest of clothing and outfits and planning to dance the night away to the amazing tunes of the orchestra. And guess what? People still do that to this very day. Now this is kind of interesting In four years, Glenn Miller and his orchestra score 16 number one records and 69 top 10 hits. That's 29 more top 10 hits than Elvis Presley, which had 40. Just goes to show you how damned impressive that is that he actually passed the king of rock and roll. He even had more than the Beatles, which that's huge. To say that Miller was passionate about music, well, that's an extreme understatement. It was his life. Not only did he have the Glenn Miller and his orchestra, but he also had his military group as well, the Major Glenn Miller Army Air Forces Orchestra. And they too were obviously just a huge hit, extremely popular and very successful. He was considered the father of modern U.S. military bands, which, in my book, that's super impressive. Now, besides being a phenomenal trombone player who had his own big band, two (laughs) big bands, Glenn had volunteered to join the military so he could entertain the troops during the Second World War, and he would ultimately end up as an officer in the United States Army Air Forces. December 13, 1944, 
Glenn Miller is on standby for a flight, but it is canceled due to bad weather that is taking place in the plane's destination, France. Sadly, December 14th, the weather proves to be no better or safer, and the flight is ultimately canceled. To Glenn Miller, this is absolutely an inconvenience. It's unacceptable. He had to find a way to get to France, and he was going to find it. It is during a phone call that he learns that Lieutenant Colonel Norman Basil from the 8th Air Force is scheduled to be leaving to Paris the following day, that being December 15th. He is successful in getting on that flight, and besides Lieutenant Colonel Basil, nobody at this point is aware that Glenn Miller is on this flight, which is a rarity when it comes to the military. Glenn Miller, he is extremely happy when he gets that invitation, and he accepts it right away. And on December 15th, Major Glenn Miller, Lieutenant Colonel Basil, and Flight Officer John Stuart Morgan take off in a Canadian single-engine bush plane, which is designed to operate from unimproved surfaces, the C-64 Norseman. At 13.55, the Canadian bush plane carrying the three men takes off from Bedfordshire, England, where they plan to land in Paris, France. The men and the C-64 Norseman bush plane are never seen again, vanishing without a speck of trace. Now, the following day, after the triple disappearance, the Battle of the Bulge begins. My grandfather not only served in World War II, but he also fought in Battle of the Bulge. He survived this and ultimately wrote about his experiences while fighting in World War II. One of the treasured items that I have is some of his writings when he served. And the Second World War was the deadliest military conflict in history. These days, it's really hard to find a World War II vet. But the rare times I do, and this includes any vet, I always thank them for their service. Just like law enforcement, I will always have a special place in my heart for the brave men and women who served and continue to serve in the military. Amazing people, every single one of you. And if you yourself have served, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so, so much. You're just mm, amazing. Now, in addition to my paternal grandfather, my paternal step-grandfather, who's never been step-grandfather, he's just a second grandfather to me and I just love him. He is very much alive and active he will be turning 100 years old in a few short months, and he too also fought in World War II. Just, again, mm, true heroes. Now, my grandpa, as mentioned earlier, he survives World War II. He went on to have four beautiful children, people that I am extremely proud to call my family. My father is, of course, being one of them. And I want to share some of my grandfather's journal entries throughout this episode, things that he wrote during his time while at war, and it will be read by his own son, my father, Jerry. June 6th, 1944. Enter D-Day, 193 days before Glenn Miller and two other men vanish without a trace. We boarded the LST at 4 a.m. in the morning, and we were out on the channel at just about daybreak. The weather was horrendous. The sky was completely overcast and a cold rain was beating down. Huge waves were pounding against the side of our boat. Shortly after daybreak, Sergeant Roebuck and I went out on the deck and we were met with an awesome sight. 
As far as the eye could see were ships, ships, and more ships. Destroyers, cruisers, huge battleships, and every kind of sea craft imaginable. I said to myself, Hello, Adolf. Get ready. We are coming. So as we know, December 15th, the three men leave, expecting to make it to Paris, France. But what was their actual final destination? See, that remains the number one question. It's perhaps the most important question when it comes to Glenn Miller and the two other men. And sadly, it's most likely to remain unanswered till the end of time. Now, since Miller was not authorized to do this, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force was completely caught off guard when it was realized three days after takeoff on December 18th that Major Glenn Miller was in fact on that bush plane. They had no clue about the route or where he or the doomed flight was. In fact, it wouldn't be until December 18th that they even knew something had happened, that it was realized that the plane and three people were missing. It is believed to have crashed somewhere in the English Channel. As is custom with the military, the three men are declared dead exactly one year and one day after they disappear. Missing in action December 15, 1944, and they are legally declared dead on December 16, 1945. Now, remember, this is World War II. There are so many things going on. I'm sure people are forgetting to breathe or forgetting their names at this point, not keeping up with what's happening elsewhere. Sitting in a truck, bemoaning our plight with Sergeant Roebuck, when suddenly the sky was filled with tracer bullets and ACAC. A Ju-88 German light bomber came hedgehopping over our area. It passed through the glare of searchlights, and luckily, it was hit by our ACAC caught on fire, plunged into the water, and miraculously missed the wall-to-wall armada that filled the English Channel. I thought, Christ, if that plane had landed on our barge loaded with gasoline and ammunition, we would have been blown to kingdom come. Shortly after that incident, the battleships and cruisers began their bombardments onto the beaches. It was deafening to the ears. It sounded like all hell had broken loose. You could actually see some of the missiles, balls of fire, flying through the air over our heads from the big guns of the battleships. So now, in spite of the delays, in spite of the bad weather, the invasion truly had started. When it is discovered the three men are missing, Major General Orville Anderson, who happened to be married to Glenn Miller's cousin Maude, while he orders a search and investigation into this triple disappearance. How can three men and an aircraft just vanish without a trace? Now, this obviously wouldn't be the first time something like this would happen. And I've mentioned this in past episodes before about certain incidents where a plane carrying tons of people just, you know, disappear. Extremely long, extensive searches via people searching the ground by foot, aircraft scanning the skies, and boats navigating the waters were conducted. But sadly, nothing ever comes out of these searches. Again, just not a shred of evidence. 
Throughout the years, there have been multiple attempts for search and recovery when it comes to the three missing men and the plane. Numerous investigations and searches have been conducted, but none have brought conclusive answers as hard as they tried. In 2014, declassified U.S. Air Force documents provided further details about the investigation, but still failed to solve the mystery. To this day, 79 years later and counting, the disappearance of the three military men remains an open case in the United States Navy's Bureau of Naval Personnel. So, what really happened that fateful day? Usually, when there's an aircraft crash, if it's on land at least, you find debris, oftentimes remains, evidence of a fire perhaps, a major disturbance of some sort, eyewitness accounts, and so on. There are many theories and beliefs when it comes to what happened to Glenn Miller. One, obviously, is that they were attacked by enemies during a World War II sabotage or aerial attack. Another possibility is an accidental crash, whether it was pilot error, which never was proven, obviously, or some sort of mechanical issue. Perhaps they fell victim to friendly fire or mistaken identity for being the enemy. Remember, two days in a row, flights were canceled due to just heinous weather. And I'm sure it wasn't a nice, bright, sunny, clear day when these men ventured out. Perhaps it was just a real shitty day to be flying and they shouldn't have been in the skies that day. And the weather maybe had something to do with it. Obviously, these are just theories, guesses, beliefs, and speculation. None have ever provided any sort of evidence or have been proven when it comes to what happened that mysterious and ever so fateful day. There have been many cases where aircraft simply just vanish. And again, I've mentioned some of these in past episodes, most recent being in the Alaska Triangle episodes a few weeks back. Now, throughout the decades, haunting headlines have taken place of missing aircraft and, of course, its people on board. Through 1920 to 1939, 46 aircraft, along with 183 people, will vanish, never to be seen again. Three additional incidents took place where some debris was actually found, but 12 people remain missing. 1940 to 1959. 55 aircraft, along with at least 872 people go missing, possibly more, but 872 documented people, because in two incidents, the exact number of people on the plane was not known. Five additional incidents during that time, there was debris found, but 163 people still missing. 1960 to 1979, 42 aircraft along with 454 people go missing. One additional incident debris was found, but 68, well, still missing. 1980 to 2000, 25 aircraft along with 198 people never seen again. One additional incident where debris was actually found and two people still missing. And... In 2001 to 2019, 17 aircraft and 84 people missing. One case, possibly more, were on board, but the exact number is unknown. 
Two additional cases show that some debris may have possibly been found, but 240 people remain missing, 239 people being from the Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 that took place March 8, 2014. I noticed an object bobbing up and down on the side of the rhino. I went over and looked. I was jolted by what I saw. The body of a young American sailor was floating right near the edge of the raft. For a moment, I thought he was alive because his eyes were wide open and appeared to be looking right at me. I figured that the poor guy was probably steering one of the small boats that had capsized and he probably thought he could make it over to our rhino. I called Sergeant Roebuck over and we lifted him up and laid him under a truck that was chained down on the floor of our boat. And the final entry I want to share from my grandfather's journal during the war is this, and it gives us a chilling front row seat, as the past centuries did, to what took place and what he, as a young man, experienced. It's difficult to describe the horrible devastation that was on that beach. It was strewn with the bodies of GIs. You could hardly take a normal step without having to jump over a dead body. Jeeps and small amphibious vehicles were burning and smoldering, some of which ran over mines. Tanks were being rushed off the rhinos. I saw some run over and crush bodies of GIs lying in their paths. Mass confusion prevailed. Everything was screwed up and disorganized. Colonel Bennett, our battalion commander, who later was decorated for his action, took it upon himself to organize as best he could the confusion that reigned. He directed our tanks and tanks from other units into positions where they could support our troops that were clinging to a small area up from the beaches. We in our half-track were directed to an area up near the bottom of the cliffs. We were right behind another of our half-tracks when we were jolted by a loud explosion that shook the earth. The vehicle in front of us ran over a mine and was completely destroyed. One of the bodies that was thrown into the air landed on the hood of our half-track. My God, it was Sergeant Roebuck, my very good pal, who just a few hours before helped me pull that sailor up over onto the rhino. He and six others in that vehicle were the first D-Day casualties of the 62nd Battalion. You know, the first time I read the journal entries... I kept just getting chills and just hearing it again as my father read it, I got chills again. And him and Sergeant Roebuck were very close and how devastating that he basically saw him get blown up. Just very, very sad. So glad he survived it because he went on to have beautiful children and grandchildren. He's been gone for some time now and I really sure do miss him, and I still hear his voice in my head. Good guy for sure. Great grandpa. There's just something different about reading a history book about World War II and then reading a journal entry of somebody who was there and experienced it and getting a bit more details than you would regularly get. Very interesting and heartbreaking and intense stuff for sure. World War II, so many precious losses, so much death, 
widows and widowers who would never experience the embrace of their soulmate ever again. Children, never to hear their parents' voice ever again. Mothers and fathers grieving for the loss of their children. If you see a veteran, thank them for their service, for they may have survived, but they may have also lost a lot of people during that hard time. Friends who were killed in action and may still be suffering from those losses and ever so haunting experiences. I remember one time, I was at the Dollar Tree of all places, and this World War II vet was in front of me in line. Always look at the hat, that's what I do. And I kind of looked at the cashier and kind of waved my hand to get her attention and point out his stuff and then pointed at me saying, I want to pay. And he didn't hear this or notice this interaction between me and the cashier. And when she told the total, I gave her the money and I let him know that it was on me and I thanked him for his service and gave him a hug. I don't remember what the total was, but it couldn't have been more than $15. It wasn't that huge of a deal. I just wanted to do something for this hero who has probably seen a lot during his time in the Second World War, like my grandpa. He was beyond grateful and he actually got teary-eyed. He could have afforded the groceries, of course. He wasn't asking for a handout. But right then and right there, I wanted to show my appreciation. And you could tell it just meant a lot to him. And I often think back about that day and about that man. And hopefully he's one of the still rare World War II vets who are still out there alive and kicking. While Glenn Miller may be gone, long presumed dead, for close to eight decades, he does live on through his music, people still enjoying it in their homes, clubs, and dance halls to this very day. This week's special city shoutouts go to Venustiano Carranza, Mexico, Dolgeville, New York, Sydney, Australia, Evergreen Park, Illinois, Bangor, Maine, and Van Nuys, California. A big, huge shout-out to my dad, Jerry, for the voiceover and reading from his late father's, my grandfather's, journal. Great job indeed there. Did you enjoy this week's episode? <laughs> Listen to the others. They are all phenomenal. Haven't heard every single one yet? And no need to fret, just hit up any of those amazing podcast platforms such as Podcast Republic, Downcast, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iTunes. Basically, wherever you may roam to hear your other spooky podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcasts lurking in the background. Thanks, everybody. It is greatly appreciated and... I will see you next week.